Greetings, one and all. Laszlo Montgomery here with another edition of the China History Podcast. As I feared, I was not able to get this show uploaded on time. This Chu Chai or business trip was way more intense and action packed than I was originally led to believe, and as a result, there wasn't enough time to get this done. But thanks to a nice 40,000 point business class upgrade on Cathay Pacific, I was able to get a good portion written. Uh, over the Pacific. So my sincerest and humblest apologies to everyone. Well, we finally made it to the Qing Dynasty, the last dynasty in Imperial Chinese history, which went back all the way to 221 BC and Qin Shi Huang. We're going to take our time for the next several weeks and just wallow in this time period. Because the Qing Dynasty began only 367 years ago in 1644, Chinese refer to this time as recent history. It's indeed recent if you consider the official starting point uh, being the Shang Dynasty that began in 1675 BC. So, 367 years ago in the context of 3,686 years of continuous recorded history, by Chinese reckoning, the Qing period is recent history. In the USA in 1644, aside from the fact that there was no USA yet, this time was our early colonial history. Jamestown was only established in 1607, a mere 37 years before the Chunzhi Emperor first sat on the throne in the Forbidden City. This is the last 267 years of Imperial Chinese history. When it all comes crashing down in 1911 with Sun Yat-sen and the Xinhai Ming, that's it for emperors. You'll have Nationalist China, then the People's Republic, and instead of emperors, we'll have the likes of Sun Zhongshan, the father of modern China, Jiang Jieshi, a.k.a. Jiang Kai-shek, followed by Mao Zedong, Hua Guofeng, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and just like it's been going back to Qin Shi Huangdi, the successor, not a crown prince though, waits in the wings, and this will be Vice President Mr. Xi Jinping. So... Let's light this fuse here and take this long march through an amazing dynasty, and one that uh, most Westerners are familiar or comfortable with. It wasn't so long ago, and no other dynasty even holds a candle to the Qing as far as interaction between the West and China goes. This is also the only dynasty for which there is a photographic record of many events and important persons. In our last episode, we discussed how the Manchus rose to power and how, with the assistance of Wu Sangui, made fast work of Li Zicheng and his brief Xun dynasty. Li Zicheng deserves the most credit for delivering the knockout punch that brought down the Ming dynasty and put it out of its misery. You'll recall someone opened the gates and let this guy and his rabble rebel army into the city and his troops ransacked the place. The Chongzhen Emperor, the last emperor of Ming China, hung himself from a tree behind the imperial palace rather than face the marauding rebels led by Li Zicheng. Then, later after Li Zicheng was overthrown, the Manchu regent Dorgan, or Duo Argun in Mandarin, assumed power as regent and put the child Xunzhi Emperor on the dragon throne, and he then becomes the first Qing Emperor of China. Now, Dorgon had to first deal with very stiff resistance coming from the Manchu aristocracy. These Manchu nobles had their own ideas about dealing with China, and they were dead set against the likely signification of the Manchus now that they 
occupied the throne. Dorgon knew if he was to stave off the pressure coming from the north, he had to get the Han Chinese on his side. And once he had their full support, this would strengthen his hand and allow him to better stand up against the Manchu nobility. So he accepted the inevitability that the Qing regime would have to bend a little to accommodate the Chinese. By 1649, Dorgon had mustered enough support to effectively curb the influence in the government of the Manchu nobles. The Chinese rallied around Dorgon, and many of the officials from the former Ming dynasty accepted his leadership and saw him as someone they could work with. But Dorgon died in 1650, and the anti-Dorgon faction was able to return to power and reverse some of the key changes and appointments. The Xunzhi Emperor reigned until 1661, and he was able to overcome the forces that were strongly opposed to sinification of the Qing. The Xunzhi Emperor brought back the eunuchs, who were only too happy to settle in the palace again and ingratiate themselves to their new masters. He also smartly had a memorial tablet erected in honor of the deceased Chongzhen Emperor, and he paid respect to the Ming Dynasty and to this last tragic emperor. This was a great PR maneuver that won over the hearts and minds of many a former Ming official and loyalist. This Xunzhir emperor was also known for his religious conviction and expressed great interest in the work of the Jesuits. However, in the end, he embraced Buddhism instead. So he really stood up to these conservative Manchu nobles in the government. February 2nd, 1661, the emperor dies of smallpox, and once again the Manchus at court, who were opposed to the ways of the Chinese, took advantage of the power vacuum and restored Manchu aristocratic power. Another child took the throne, and there was a regency put in place to govern on behalf of this seven-year-old kid. The leading regent was called Oboi, or in Mandarin, Albai. Not only did he engineer the return of the Manchu nobility to power, he falsified a deathbed confession of the Xunzhi Emperor, where everything about the assumption of Ming Chinese ways, including the eunuchs, was renounced. So Oboi spent the next six years of this regency totally undoing everything the previous emperor did. The Chinese, the eunuchs, and bureaucrats were all swept away from any positions of power, and it was a total Manchu takeover of the government. The Oboi Regency, as it was called, was a dark time for the Chinese, but it got to the point where it all got to be a little too much, and in time some sort of middle ground was explored that wasn't the all-out pro-Chinese policies of the deceased Xunzhi Emperor, and at the same time didn't follow the extremist anti-Chinese pro-Manchu ways of the Oboi Regency. The seven-year-old emperor, the third son of the Xunzhi emperor, despite being exposed to the disease, survived the smallpox that had killed his father. Back in those days, if he can do this, it meant you were special. Six years later, into the Oboi Regency, when this boy emperor was formally enthroned, he began to slowly assert himself. And by the time he was 15, he made his move against Oboi and had him and his followers arrested. Quite amazing for a 15-year-old, but then again, this was no ordinary kid. He was none other than the Kangxi Emperor, who is acknowledged as the greatest emperor of the Qing Dynasty and truly one of the top emperors of China, going all the way back to Han Gaozu. The Kangxi Emperor reigned a nice long time, from 1662 to 1722, a total of 61 years. 
And this six-decade reign makes him the all-time champ in Chinese history. Nobody had a longer run than Kangxi Di. He's also known by his temple name, Shengzu. Once in a while, China got lucky, and not only did you have a great emperor, but he reigned a long time too. He was the first of three great emperors who gave the Qing dynasty their best years. These three great emperors, Kangxi, Yongzheng, and Qianlong, ruled collectively for 135 years. After all that had happened since the Ming started to irreparably decay, the transition from Ming to Qing and all the infighting, finally there came with the Kangxi Emperor a period of peace, stability, military victories, and expansion of the empire. Once he had done away with the powerful regent Oboi and came into his own, this emperor listed three challenges that he prioritized. These were improving flood control of the Yellow River, fixing up the Grand Canal, and dealing with the three feudatories who had revolted. Wait a second, what's a feudatory? A feudatory has nothing to do with a feud. It's related to feudalism. Remember, when the Qing took over, they needed a few Han Chinese generals to help them dump the Ming and later rule the faraway provinces that the Manchus couldn't effectively rule. One of these generals was, as you recall from the last episode, Wu Sangui, who had allowed the Manchus to pass through the Great Wall at Shanghai Guan. These Ming generals, or collaborators, were amply rewarded and given what's known as feudatories, and they became sort of vassals of the Qing rulers. The Manchus, knowing their limitations and all, knew they couldn't bite off more than they could chew, so for these lands far, far from Beijing, they instituted the Yi Han Zhi Han system, which basically said, let the Han rule the Han Chinese, where they, the Manchus themselves, couldn't effectively govern. The three provinces that were too far away to control were Yunnan, Guangdong, and Fujian. But where the Manchus did rule, particularly close to their epicenter in Manchuria, it was not the best time to be Chinese. The Manchus, like their Jurchen ancestors, weren't such nice guys and totally held the Han Chinese and their ways in contempt. Kangxi changed all that. He actively tried to pacify the Chinese and reverse the tension created by edicts that kicked all Chinese out of Manchuria, banned intermarriage, created horrible conditions for peasants, and again, the men were forced to wear the Manchu tonsure that called for them to shave their forehead and wear this pigtail or queue that they just hated and caused all kinds of uproar. Nothing did more to fan the flames of animosity than this, and as we'll see later at the tail end of the dynasty, long after the mandate of heaven was gone, cutting off the pigtail was a symbol of rejection of their Manchu overlords. Kangxi brought the Chinese into the fold and halted all these kinds of policies of segregation. He lowered taxes, which boosted prosperity in agriculture and commerce, which led, in turn, to more revenue coming into the coffers. Kangxi was a brilliant patron of the arts and learning. Among the other great works commissioned by the Kangxi Emperor are the Kangxi Dictionary and the Epic History of the Ming, the Kangxi Zidian and the Ming Shi. He also called for a complete edition of the works of Zhu Xi. These alone have already immortalized this great emperor. These were heady days to be a scholar, and there was plenty of work to go around. Even within the confines of the Forbidden City, 
workshops, studios, and kinds of intellectual salons have been set up to advance learning and sciences and the arts. Now, back to the three feudatories, the Sanfanzhi Luan. Our friend, or traitor to the Chinese, however you want to view him, Wu Sanque, he was given the provinces of Yunnan and Guizhou. Two other Ming generals, Shang Keshi and Geng Zhongming, were given Guangdong and Fujian, respectively. Now, these feudatories, like any vassal state, were passed on to their sons and grandsons. And these three, Wu, Shang, and Geng, were known as the Three Feudatories. The Kangxi Emperor began to have second thoughts about these three feudatories who had sided with the Manchus and had been instrumental in facilitating their conquest of China. They controlled an area in the south about the size of France and Spain combined, and once they began to make their rule over these lands hereditary, the Kangxi Emperor knew he had to nip this problem in the bud. The three feudatories began to smell trouble as Kangxi was sending out feelers to test their continued loyalty to their Manchu masters. Essentially, there wasn't any loyalty, and what was developing down in the south was simply another access of power to rival the Manchus, who were stronger in the north. In 1673, Wu Sanque was the first to break with the Manchus. He declares a new dynasty, choosing the name Zhou, just as Wu Zetian did almost a thousand years before when she ruled as China's only empress. Shang Kushi and Geng Zhongming openly broke with the Manchus, and though they didn't go so far as to found their own dynasties, they were firmly lined up with Wu Sangui against the Manchus. Well, the War of the Three Feudatories is long and involved and lasted eight years, from 1673 to 1681. In short, it failed, and the three leaders, Wu, Shang, and Geng, never really got it together and were unsuccessful in coordinating their reconquest of China. Furthermore, all three had black marks against their names, having already once sold out to the Qing. It was harder than expected to muster support amongst all the Chinese who viewed them as former traitors. And besides all this, all three turned out to be just plain old, incompetent, and not suited to be rulers. Wu Sangui declared himself emperor of his Zhou dynasty in 1678, but died in the same year. By 1681, the whole affair was over and done with, and the Kangxi Emperor had prevailed. Had the War of the Three Feudatories been successful, it would have spelled a quick end to the Qing. They would have gone down in history as another quick dynasty in China, like the Western Qin and the Sui. But thanks to the Three Feudatories essentially not rising to the occasion, and the Manchu's success on the battlefield, it turned out to be merely an eight-year threat that was ultimately smashed. One interesting note of this time was that firearms make their first significant entree in Chinese history. Cannon, of course, had been around a while, but now guns were starting to blaze, and although crossbows were still the weapon of convenience, battles now took on a new look and deadliness. Kangxi filled the power vacuum down in the south uh, with his own people, who were unquestionably loyal to him. Now, when I say the south, I actually mean the Yangtze River region, more than the southern provinces of Guizhou, Yunnan, Hunan, Guangxi, who had earlier thrown in their lot with the three feudatories. They were conquered, but remained on the periphery, and loyalties down there towards the Manchus were hardly enthusiastic. 
The Qing shared the same lack of interest in maritime trade and exploration that the other inner Asian peoples had. They were people comfortable on land, on the back of a horse. This isn't to say that no trade or commerce took place. Trade was still plentiful, and during this first half-century of the Qing, the Europeans were now coming in droves via sea for the first time, and with them came the Jesuit missionaries. As we mentioned last time, the Italian Jesuit Matteo Ricci was given permission to reside in Beijing back in 1601. The Jesuits truly endeared themselves with the Confucian scholar elites, learning Mandarin and passing on Western knowledge and astronomy, mathematics, European clock-making, cartography, and many other aspects of Western learning. The Jesuits took a long-term view of China and sort of made allowances to attract Chinese to their religion by allowing some Chinese sensibilities to permeate the faith. This included a tolerance of Confucianism. No tolerance, however, was given to Buddhism or to Neo-Confucianism. So, in the interest of proselytizing their own faith, they made some allowances. We'll see later on when the Dominicans and the Franciscans come to China, they challenge this Jesuit way of doing things and preach their own more pure version of Catholicism. These friars, who came from the Spanish Philippines, targeted the common people in China rather than the Jesuits who focused on the elites of society. The inevitable clashes happened between the Jesuits and these mendicant friars. The Kangxi Emperor was also famous for his six grand tours across southern China between 1684 and 1707. He visited the western part of China and also to Chufu, the home of Confucius, and he also walked in the footsteps of Qin Shi Huang when he ascended Taishan, one of the sacred mountains of China in Shandong province. Not a single Ming emperor had made this trek previously. He traveled throughout the realm, mostly incognito, and loved to mingle with the Lao Bai Xing. In fact, the most satisfying activity for the Kangxi emperor was to be on the back of a horse in a wide open space somewhere out in nature. Let's talk about Taiwan now. Taiwan's integration into China starts right about here. Historically, Taiwan hadn't been part of China. It was within the sphere of Chinese maritime influence, but it had never been developed or explored. Being an island separated by a narrow 120-mile strait was the main reason. Aboriginal people lived on the island and engaged in trade with adventurers from Guangdong and particularly with Fujian, which is right across the strait from Taiwan. The Japanese also traded with the Aboriginal people in Taiwan. Towards the tail end of the Ming Dynasty, Portuguese sailors visited the island, or as the story goes, were shipwrecked. They named the place Ilha Formosa, which in Portuguese means beautiful isle. The Portuguese never established a full-time presence there because they were already set up in Macau. But the Spanish and the Dutch did, and the Spanish set themselves up in Jilong, and the Dutch did the same down in Tainan. Now, the Dutch, they eventually kicked the Spanish out early in the game, and they became the strongest and most established Western presence on the island. The Dutch East Indies were in full swing by this time, and they had a major enterprise going on in the Spice Islands a.k.a. Indonesia. Taiwan had been dominated by the warlord Zheng Jing. I haven't mentioned Zheng Jing's father yet, but I will now. Zheng Changgong, also known as Kachinga, which was a 
Western pronunciation of his other honorific Chinese name, Guo Xingye. He wasn't the only one that was holding out against the Manchu rulers. Zheng Changgong, or Kaxinga, lived sort of a tragic life, but his descendants continued to hold out against the Manchus, and the Zhengs did a big business trading in all kinds of commodities. The Manchus were great on horseback, but not too good when it came to fighting on water. So they were essentially unsuccessful in displacing the Zhengs and were powerless to stop them. And it's right about now in the 1660s, 1670s, that you start to see massive migration across the Taiwan Strait, mostly from Fujianese. And to this day, that's why the local language of Taiwan is pretty much the same as what you hear in Fujian province. So this is where it all began, and one of these days when we discuss the history of Taiwan, we'll get into much greater detail. But it's during the Kangxi Emperor's time that in 1684, Taiwan is annexed to China, and its history is irreversibly linked forever to China. In 1683, forces loyal to the Qing, led by Shilang, invaded Taiwan with a force of 300 vessels, and the Zhengs were finally crushed. And from this point forward, Taiwan was part of Qing Dynasty China, and it was initially made a prefecture of Fujian province. Kangxi, by now, had multiple feathers in his cap, as a teenager, he had overthrown the Oboi Regency and then went on to defeat the three feudatories, followed by his conquest of Taiwan. He had pacified the Han Chinese and established prosperity across China. When the Russians started to get ambitions up near the border in Heilongjiang, the Kangxi Emperor was able to sort that out and ended up signing a commercial treaty with them in 1696. Also in the 1690s, Kangxi personally led two military campaigns against the powerful Mongolian leader, Galdan, who had grand designs to unify the Mongolians. And 22 years later, the forces of the Kangxi emperor invaded Tibet and installed their own choice of Dalai Lama after what they saw was a usurper who was put on the throne. Among the most sensitive and important issues today that we read about constantly all had their roots during the reign of the Kangxi Emperor. And with Tibet under their control, as well as Taiwan, you see the extent of the Qing Empire from north, south, east, and west. A map of China in 1720 looks very, very close to a map of China in 2011. China now, under the Kangxi Emperor, was at least geographically, looking much like the China we all know and love today. Unifying and consolidating China was the Kangxi Emperor's passion and maybe his greatest achievement. December 1722, the longest reigning emperor China had ever seen, died of natural causes. As great as this emperor was, he blundered the succession, not naming any heir to the throne. Therefore, the transition was not a smooth one from Kangxi to one of his many sons who became the Yongzheng Emperor. The Yongzheng Emperor reigned from 1723 to 1735. Right about this time, on the other side of the world, the founding fathers who would form the nation known as the USA were being born into this world. The Kangxi Emperor was a hard-working monarch. He took his job seriously and worked tirelessly all day and night. He wasn't just an emperor who reigned. He was a hands-on ruler and got right down to the details. Fortunately for us, this emperor spared no detail about his personal life and kept a great record of his thoughts and his 
personal feelings. Despite the magnificence of the times he lived in, the Kangxi Emperor lived a rather frugal life, all things considered. He did father 56 children, though, and I assure you not from the same wife. He would notoriously rise at 5 a.m. and be attended to by his eunuchs, and he would drink tea with milk and often had bird's nest soup, and then he would pray and meditate at a Buddhist shrine within the palace compound. He would also devote some time to study of the classics before he was carried in his litter to the Palace of Heavenly Purity, or the Qianqinggong, where the nitty-gritty of the affairs of state were carried out. After a 2 p.m. midday meal, he would continue his devotions to learning and the fine arts, and late into the evening, he would continue the work of the emperor, reading documents and writing his personal instructions in the margins of these so-called memorials. Let's close with Kangxi's immortal valedictory edict. He wrote this five years before his death in 1722. It was meant to be read after his death, and in it he spelled out his thoughts on China, governing, and the legacy of his six-decade reign. He said, quote, Be kind to men from afar, and keep the able ones near. Nourish the people. Think of the prophet of all as being the real prophet, and the mind of the whole country as being the real mind. Protect the state before danger comes, and govern well before there is any disturbance. Be always diligent and always careful. I'd say these are good words of advice that all leaders of all nations should listen to. In his summation of his valedictory edict, he said, quote, I have enjoyed the respect from my people and the wealth of the world. There is nothing I do not have, nothing that I have not experienced. But now that I have reached old age, I cannot rest easy for a moment. Therefore, I regard the whole country as a worn-out sandal, and all wealth as mud and sand. If I can die peacefully, without any outbreak of trouble, I would be much satisfied. I wish all of you officials to remember that I have been a kind and sincere emperor for over 50 years, and that what I have repeated to you over and over is really from the bottom of my heart. I will say no more. Next week, we will look at his successor, the Yongzheng Emperor. He wasn't his father's first choice. The crown prince turned out to be a real ne'er-do-well of copious proportions, and although it broke his heart, the Kangxi Emperor had to go to Plan B, which was essentially to do nothing. So we have this murky succession, but we end up with the Yongzheng Emperor, and although he was no Kangxi, the Qing Dynasty certainly could have done a lot worse. So we'll look at him next week. In future podcasts, we'll come back again, and perhaps again after that, to the reign of the Kangxi Emperor. We're only scanning the surface and getting a general idea of the time. So we'll come back another day and look at the history of Westerners in China and about the Catholic Church, painting, calligraphy, literature, and so forth and so on, as Professor Bob says. Again, I'm sorry I didn't get this uploaded in the usual seven to eight day period. I'm back in the USSA, and I think we'll fall back on this normal episode frequency. And so, from the tranquility of Claremont, California, this is Laszlo Montgomery once again wishing you the very best. Thank you very much for listening, and I Hope to see you next week again for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Uh, hang on, I'm not done yet. Um, before I uh, upload this, I wanted to first 
personally apologize humbly, deeply and sincerely about my uh, nasal congestion and to all those who found it offensive to listen to the past 27 and a half minutes. Uh, looks like I got uh, coughed and sneezed on while I was enjoying my business class digs on that Cathay flight writing this episode. Uh, I hope next week I'll sound more like myself uh, rather than some uh, history podcaster with a bad cold. So, sorry everyone. Okay, that's it.